And let's go ahead and get started, and we'll uh, get this get this started. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask as we as we come together tonight that we will be uh, mindful of all that you do for us uh, in 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 your uh, in your work on our behalf as as believers and sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, here's your quiz. Okay, well, I see everybody's still staring down at these quizzes, but there's just three questions, so we'll go ahead and start, start grading it here and uh, find out what the uh, consternation is all about. Okay, number one, by saying that the Holy Spirit lives with you and will be in you, Christ was telling us what? D was what I was looking for, yes. Um... Some of you may have put C, and there's a, perhaps a possibility that there's the the idea is that the Holy Spirit is going to sort of resume a function that the Son is at that point fulfilling. But it, I don't know that it's the sanctifying influence. So if you have a C, I'll give you half credit. But I was looking for D. That was the answer I was hoping for. It does not seem to be making some sort of a major theological statement about sanctification or indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Number two, Old Testament believers were able to be equally as confident of their salvation as New Testament believers are today. I was looking for truth. Yeah, so, yeah, so I mean, the only thing that's different, of course, is that for us, Christ's work is done, and for them, Christ's work, them, for the Old Testament saints, Christ's work was yet to come. Of course, faith, by definition, is a confidence in things not seen and yet hoped for. Of course, uh, uh, Hebrews 11, in giving, giving us that definition, actually uh, speaks about Old Testament saints who died not having received the promise and yet died with absolute confidence that they would be recipients of the promise. Um, and again, probably it's it's the nature of faith that is at issue here. Uh, faith, you know, remember I said faith, faith becomes sight, but faith does not become any more confident because of sight. And so the answer there is true. So I tricked you. I actually had one that's true. <laughs> Normally they're all false, right? You mentioned that last week, so I figured I'd better change it. <laughs> Number three. Be false, Was that? It's gotta be false then, right? Number three. <laughs> because the Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are children of God, we may expect to enjoy ineffable, nonverbal, internal surges of confidence about the genuineness of our relationship with God. Okay, so for those of you who put false, what what does it mean that the Holy Spirit bears with our spirits that we are sons of God, children of God? That we have assurance. Okay, so we have assurance, but how, how is that assurance communicated to us? In sanctification, our advancing holiness. Exactly. So it's it's not some sort of ineffable, nonverbal... Oh, I feel really saved today. 
but rather by observing your own life and the Holy Spirit's activity in it. He's, he's advancing you in holiness, causing you to cry out in prayer, uh, uh, you know, giving you the courage to suffer for him. These things are what give us the assurance of salvation. So he is testifying to us through us. Uh, not it's it's not some sort of just some, some sort of an external, you know, launch into your mind. You're a child of God. Okay, so the answer I was anticipating was false. Go ahead. We might, we might also have moments of weakness where you said, you know, we might need to get us back in track. Sure. But ultimately, my assurance become, comes from the finished work of Christ. True. On the cross. So True. The, the security, uh, eternal security is... Is yeah. that and, and of course if we did assurance because he's certain what right. he did is final and I believe it. True, but, but when we're looking at assurance, mm-hmm. is 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 the confidence that we are recipients right. of Christ's finished work, right. and so that's really what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're right. You're you're every bit correct in saying that if Christ had not died and risen, then no there would be no basis for assurance. Nonetheless, the assurance is not on the fact alone but on the confidence that that death, burial, and resurrection has been applied to me as evidenced in the Holy Spirit's uh, sanctifying influence and work in my life. And there is a sense, that even, even, after, even after saying that this is a false statement, there is a sense that, it, that having, you know, having this confidence means that we do have peace with God, which is internal. And so there is uh, perhaps some sort of a, an affective response, uh, a, 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 an, an encouragement that good takes place in our minds too. Uh, but that's not something that is given to us from from without, and you know just launched into your brain. You're a child of God, but rather it's from within. Well, I still put false. <laughs> okay. hey, as long as I got it right, <laughs> I like being right. I tried to be as creative as possible with that one. So, <laughs> took me a while to write that. So true. <laughs> okay, so we're in the middle of our discussion here on the uh, resultant works of spirit indwelling that take place. Because the Holy Spirit is intersecting with the mind, uh, who he has taken up residence, as it were, we have the mind of Christ. We've been united with Christ. We've become participants and the partakers of the divine nature. All of those things come together to say, "Okay, so what does that mean?" Well, we uh, talked about the first uh, two of these last time. Talked about the seal of the Holy Spirit, the fact that we are eternally secure um, because of. The seal of the Holy Spirit, the, the the evident, manifest presence of the Holy Spirit in the life, producing the fruits of the Spirit and such, uh, are you know his 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 presence there is the guarantee. This is the seal of our salvation, uh, the down payment, so to speak, of of the uh, of of the of the blessings that are yet to come. Uh, we also then talked about assurance just reviewed here, uh, that assurance, the, the, the internal working of the Holy Spirit to produce his fruit in us, 
uh, to cause us to uh, to add to our faith virtue and knowledge and temperance and so on and so forth. These things, if these things be in you and abound, they cause you uh, to be confident, and you have a rich welcome into the kingdom of his dear son. But if these things are absent, uh, then so is the confidence uh, that we have. Okay, so assurance and sealing are resultant works of the Holy Spirit. Uh, number three, then, 46, we're coming into new material here tonight, uh, is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, or sometimes called the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. So by definition, illumination is the work of the Spirit in the hearts of the regenerate, whereby he convinces them of the authority of Scripture and makes them favorably inclined to yielding to it. Okay, so the Holy Spirit just doesn't simply take up residence, but he actually causes our heart, our minds, our inclinations to be specifically here toward the Christian scriptures. And uh, and uh, what I want to do is look at some of these texts, uh, perhaps uh, disabuse you of a, a common misunderstanding about illumination, and then give a give a give an explanation of what goes on here. First uh, Corinthians two is perhaps one of the probably the, the go to text for this idea of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. It's a conversation that starts all the way back in almost back to chapter one, and uh, Paul is giving here something of a homiletical strategy. Mm-hmm. How is it that he's going to uh, preach to the Corinthians and to and, and in general, uh, so that uh, he can be most effective? And uh, he goes. He starts here in chapter two by talking about how he didn't speak and how he did speak when he was preaching to them. He said, "I didn't come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God." Okay, so the the idea here is he doesn't do what the uh, uh, what the philosophers of his day would have done try to to wow people with fancy rhetoric, clever gimmickry as he speaks. Uh, it doesn't mean that he came in and stumbled over his words deliberately just to look dumb. That's that's not the point. But he didn't he didn't allow the message of the gospel to ride on the back of, of gimmickry or rhetorical flourish that would make people say, wow, he's a great speaker. Because then, he argues, the power wouldn't be in God, but the power would be in the speaker. So he says, so I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except this rather simple message, an unlikely message, of Jesus Christ and his crucified, him crucified, so I came to you in weakness and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I think it's kind of interesting that sometimes we talk about preachers who are powerful preachers, you know. Uh, they're people who, who are loud who are dynamic, who uh, you know, who's, who really hold your attention, and this seems to be precisely what Pete, what Paul is saying is not 
powerful preaching. Because in such a case, the power comes from the dynamism, the charisma of the one speaking. And he says, that's not what I was attempting to do. I came with some, you know, something of a nondescript lecture uh, that I delivered to you. I'm sure with a, a certain amount of animation. I mean, he was it's not attempted to be boring. Uh, but he did not try to ride uh, the, uh, the the wings of this of this volume or a cadence that sometimes a, a preachers would have. This is not powerful preaching for him. Powerful preaching is preaching that is demonstrably attended by the Holy Spirit in the life of the person who is listening. That's powerful preaching. And so he goes into this little, you know, from verses 6 to 13, it's sort of a big parenthesis, like some of your translations will actually have big parentheses here. Uh, but if we cut, we pick the, 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 uh, the, his, his main message up here in verse 14 as he tries to explain what this is. You know, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned or spiritually appraised. Spiritual man, however, makes judgments about all things, though he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. Okay, So the power, then, is demonstrable in the hearer, not in the volume or the cadence or the cleverness of the speaker. And and Paul really wanted to make sure that people weren't being wowed by him, but were actually being affected by the message that he was delivering through the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so the Holy Spirit causes them, the, nat- the, 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 the spiritual man, the man with the Spirit, to welcome or accept the things that come from the Spirit of God and appraise them correctly. You know, the, the man without the Spirit can't understand them. He can't discern them. The, the idea, he, he doesn't make the correct appraisal of them. He thinks this is foolish. Um, but the spiritual man makes correct judgments. He appraises the message correctly, listens to it, welcomes it, uh, processes it and applies it. Okay, and so that's that's that is the work of the Holy Spirit in illumination. Let's go to First John two. We find another expression of this. First John two twenty. But you have an anointing. Your old. King James has an unction, but uh, this is a little bit more understandable, maybe. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, because no lie comes from the truth. Skip down to verse 27. As for you, this anointing that you received from me remains in you so that you do not need anyone to teach you but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has been taught you, remain in him. Okay, so we have what's called here an anointing, an unction, 
a work of the Holy Spirit that is resident within you, such that you are able to recognize what God has said, and then actually causes you to be able to look at it, process it, read it, and apply it again. Such that it says here, you don't need anyone to teach you. Of course, this is not an absolute statement, that we don't need teachers or preachers in the life of the church. Obviously, the the whole of the New Testament militates against that conclusion, that we don't need, we don't need teachers or preachers. Uh, but the point is that there is not some sort of uh, and there's this group of, of, of elites that have possession of the, 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 the official interpretation of the scripture. And don't bother reading yourself. Just go listen to the elites who know, the knowing ones. And uh, this passage says that every single person who has been born of God has within them the ability to look at a text, process it, and to apply it without help. You know, for for the most part. I mean, obviously there are some, as as Paul says, there are some things. Well, Peter says there are some things that are difficult to understand in the Scripture. But by and large, what the Scriptures have to say are fairly clear. Particularly the ones that tell us what to do. Uh, usually, our problem. Uh, in reading the scripture is not that we don't know what it means but rather that we don't like what it means right Okay, and so the Holy Spirit comes along and assists us in that regard one more passage here 1 Thessalonians 2 really there's a whole there's really a, 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 a whole I mean, really, the first two chapters of First Thessalonians uh, are chipping away at this topic here. We can actually start all the way back up in chapter 1. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only with words, but with power. And then, uh, this is... This is I think this is very important for us to see in view of, of what we saw in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5. Where's the power? How do, how do, what does it mean when Paul says that my word came to you with power? Well, it doesn't mean that he preached loud or preached cleverly or had a cadence going because this, this passage wouldn't make any sense if that were the case, right? It, it's, it's not that... You, you you know that someone's been chosen by God because somebody preached well to them. That doesn't make sense, right? A lot of people have had the word of God preached very well to them, and they didn't respond. So what's the problem? Well, the power isn't resident with the preacher. It's not as though some sort of homiletical anointing comes upon the preacher so that he preaches more powerfully than normal. Rather, the power... In this, in this transmission here that goes on every Sunday, pastor preaching and you receiving, the power rests in you. Okay, And how do we know, how, does, how did Paul know that his readers were in fact believers? Well, because our gospel came to you powerfully, that is, with deep conviction. So that, verse 6, you became imitators of us, 
and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit and became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And it keeps going. Uh, speaking, he get, goes into something of a, 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 a an accolade here of the Thessalonians because of all they were doing to to demonstrate their faith. So the power here that 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 he's talking about is a power that's resident within believers who that causes them to welcome the message with joy and to respond in faith by be, becoming imitators of Christ and becoming a model of salvation of sanctification. And then we cut down to chapter 2, verse 13. We thank God, he sort of picks up the theme again, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in those who believe, such that you became imitators of God's churches in Judea, etc., Okay, so, so the idea again here is that when we have this illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, it's not so much that he causes us to understand what the words mean, but actually causes us to welcome the words whose meaning is abundantly clear and to apply them effectively. Now, uh, we had a longer discussion about this in our first of, uh, first of our sessions here, Systematic One. Uh, the work of the Spirit and illumination, but um, there's a, there's an, something of an insidious idea here that the work of the Holy Spirit is imparts new revelation, gives us new information that's hidden to everything but the eye of faith, uh, increases the Bible's clarity, or removes the need to develop reading skills, hermeneutical skills. Uh, that to, in order to discover the meaning of Scripture, okay. So that the idea here is, you know, I don't know what the Bible means, but if, you know, I'll just read it, and, and the Holy Spirit will tell me what it means. Or perhaps you're reading and you say, you know, I, I don't understand what these words mean. So what am I going to do? Am I going to a pick up a commentary, b call my pastor, or c squeeze my eyes tight and ask the Holy Spirit to tell me what it means? Well, I think there's a lot of folks out there who would pick C, okay? That if I squeeze my eyes tight and, and, and ask God to help me, that he's going to actually make the words come alive to me in some sense, that the words mean something more than they had previously. But that, that's a rather, it's a rather dangerous idea, because what it suggests then is that the meaning is not in the words, but the meaning is in the encounter that we have with God above the words, which is a theory that's been long propounded by a fellow by the name of Karl Barth, New Orthodoxy, perhaps you're familiar with the idea, uh, that the Bible is simply a pointer to the message, a pointer to Christ, and so the encounter that we have with God is not in the words, but actually above the words. Which does what? Well, may effectively makes the words unnecessary. Uh, if, 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 if the meaning of the text is above the words then why do we need the words at all? And I think we have a rather uh, a problematic approach here. And, and I think what we, we, if, uh, what we tend to do in, in such a situation then is say, I don't need to look at a commentary. I don't need to ask somebody to help me here. I just need to squeeze my eyes tight and close tight, and it'll come to me. 
And what ends up happening is you sort of manufacture something that isn't there. The meaning is in the words. So if you don't understand the words, find someone that can help you understand the words. Okay? The meaning is in the, in the grammar, it's in the syntax. Uh, so what does the Holy Spirit do then, if not to tell you what the text means? Well, there's a distinction sometimes made in, in the discussions of reading. between A distinction made here between meaning and significance. Okay? The meaning, then, is wrapped up in the words. How do, how do I, you know, if I, someone uh, was to send me a letter... How would I know the meaning? I'd look at the words, put them together, because they're in sentences, and, and you piece it together and find out what the meaning is. The meaning's right there in the words, okay, as long as it's somebody who's a skilled writer, of course. Uh, the meaning is right there. Okay, so you can read through it, you know, uh, you know, I get, get a text, you know, there's a, there's a mouse up in the attic, this is a very recent one, there's a, there's a mouse up in the attic, and you get some, some mouse poison, uh, be, what, before you come home, okay. Well, what does the text mean? Well, it's pretty obvious. Stop at the hardware store, pick up some mouse poison or some other means of killing mice, and bring it home to me. Meaning's fairly clear. I don't need help in understanding what the meanings of the words are, okay. But what I sometimes could need help for is to actually welcome this as something that's something I need to do. I might get the text and say, I know what it means, but I don't have, I have the time to stop, or I just don't think it's important to stop. Okay, and so what I might need help is it from is, is, is in the significance, actually doing what it says, welcoming the message and saying, this is what I need to do about what I have read. Okay, that's the significance. Same thing happens when you read the scripture, right? It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Okay? Do we know what the words mean? Yes. We really need no help in understanding what those words mean. Do we need help with the significance? Yes. We need help from the Holy Spirit to incline us to actually do what it says, and then perhaps to sort of, you know... Help us understand what that means for us, because it, because it might mean something different for you than it does for me. Okay, you know, I, you know, for 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 me, you know, if if I'm going to honor my father and my mother, I know what it means. It means that next week, it's a good reminder here, means that next week I need to send them a uh, a a an anniversary card because they like they like getting cards. I think, personally, cards are a waste of money. You know, <laughs> you know. I mean, if you give me a card, I'll read it and all that. But I, 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 I just don't value cards. Some of you do, some of you don't. But I know that for me, honoring my father and mother means sending them an anniversary card next week. Okay. For some of you, it means something totally different. But what the Holy Spirit does then is comes along and says, okay, what's the significance of this verse for you? What does that mean for you today? And uh, so, so that's what the Holy Spirit does here. So illumination, I say more precisely, Calvin denominated the internal testimony of the Spirit. 
imparts certainty, firstly, of the identity of the canon, supplies the internal indications uh, that the word of God is, in fact, the word of God. We recognize it for the words that they are. It recognizes the voice of God. But also, and probably more significantly, number two, illumination removes the hostility of the depraved mind to the word of God. And the, the natural man is natively hostile to God. They don't like what he has to say. So the hostility of the depraved mind to God and his law leads to the exchange of God's truth for a lie, and it cannot be overcome by, you know, some you know, goodwill or evidences or persuasive speech. It's only by the Spirit that the Spirit can that the, the believer can accept, that is to welcome the Word of God, know it for what it is, embrace it for what it is, appraise it correctly, and appreciate and apply it in my particular setting. Okay, so that's the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know perhaps I, I might have slain the sacred cow here, uh, but uh, the illuminate the promise of the Scripture, at least in, in these texts here, is not that the Holy Spirit's going to come along and enlighten us to the meaning of the text. That's right there in the words. Uh, rather, he causes us to welcome it. And, uh, um, anybody has any thoughts on that it's tricky because it does seem like that meaning of significance mm-hmm. you know like some of that is to me feels like syntax a little bit too because you know if you're not a believer and you're reading something you may be able to glean some meaning from the words but like you said that meaning might be different once you come to the Lord or like maybe you maybe you actually like you have that discernment where you're able to say oh that's actually what it means I thought maybe I thought that's what it was before but so it kind of seems like the work of the Spirit is involved a little bit in, in that discernment point of view, mm-hmm. and then then you're able to realize the significance of it as well. So it just feels so like closely woven together. Right. I mean, there is a sense in which the, the unbeliever will never look all that carefully at the Scriptures because they don't believe. Uh, so so there, perhaps there is a sense in which the... The Holy Spirit, you know, in, in some sense, causes us to keep our noses in the Bible, uh, so that we actually do see what's there and think about it, and uh, and and expend the effort to understand what the words mean. Uh, at the same time, that's not what the illumination of the Holy Spirit is—giving us meaning. So He's sort of sort of throwing meaning into our brains uh, apart from the words. I, I totally get what you're saying too, because you know, somebody could read something and oh. You know, God spoke to me, and that means that I need to, you know, like, okay, well, hold on, like, that's not what that means, you know, but I see what you're saying. I just mean that, like, you know, it feels like it's so, it's like such a closely woven It is, yeah. I mean, communication is a very complicated process, and so God's uh, communication to us is too, and so the process is, I mean, it's it's giving, receiving, processing, and all that, so it's, it's not perhaps quite as simple as meaning significance. There's perhaps a bleeding of the two. But typically when you when you think of the scripture, it means one thing. But it but at the same time, even though I know it what it means, it, it it may look differently when I obey it than when you obey it. When you obey it. Because of our timing too, you know, like right. like 
I've been through something where it's like I've had like a really tough situation, and the significance of a passage I've known my whole life might finally be like, oh, like, yeah, I needed it. that today. Yeah, you know, where maybe I didn't need it like that yesterday, but right. So it's circumstantial too, I guess. Sure. It's good. So I keep thinking of I could read poetry and sort of not have a clue what it means. <laughs> and it, so somewhere in there, someone would have to help me with what it means in poetry and maybe it's not a good thing to even think about but it can sort of mean different things to different people well okay scriptures are not like that yeah but okay what, what happens when you read poetry though you, you, you do need help sometimes to know what it means because perhaps they're using some vocabulary that you don't understand perhaps they're making some arcane allusions that you didn't quite pick up unless you know the context of the author or or perhaps some historical event that took place and so you, that's why you know that's why you have American lit class and, and Brit lit that's what I'm thinking right so you come together and your teacher you know knows seems seems like she, she or he knows magically things about this text that you don't know the fact is she or he has just spent the time to you know, to understand all the ins and outs of this piece of literature. And so the the meaning is clearer to her than it is to you. Now, that's, that's meaning. It's entirely meaning. You, you, you can get help from a teacher to get the meaning. But what we're talking about here is something different. What we're talking about then is significant. So, for instance, you read of Robert Frost's uh, poem about the outdoors and you know, two roads diverged in a wood, and and and, and, uh, and and perhaps something comes into your mind, like you know, I'm I'm sitting out there hunting, and I'm I'm thinking about some of the things he writes, and it you know, it just makes some it, it it you know connects with me in a certain way at that particular time. That's the significance for it for me, but I, I haven't I haven't touched the meaning. The meaning is fixed. I guess I'm thinking I can read certain scripture, and then until maybe like uh, he said that. Uh, until some life event happens, the significance right. pops out. Yeah, meaning is singular, but significant can have almost as many as as many as many expressions as there are people in the room. So, and the Holy Spirit helps us with the significance, not with the meaning. The meaning, the meaning's right there in the words. That's the only place to find the meaning. Okay. Let's move then to sanctification here, sanctification, and uh, next week I'm not going to be here, but uh, Bill Combs is going to fill in some of this material on uh, sanctification, Uh, but uh, I say there's two troubling poles uh, to start out here with. Uh, I'd start with a statement here that Sinclair Ferguson makes, every antinomian that you meet as a legalist trying to escape from his legalism and using the wrong medicine. Okay, I like the statement because it sort of sets up the two poles that we fight with when we're engaged in sanctification. On the one side is an antinomianism that says, I can do whatever I want. And then on the other side, there's a legalism that accumulates all sorts of rules in order to make me more acceptable to God. Okay. And the proper approach to sanctification lies at neither of those poles. Okay. So I start here by 
explaining these poles. Pharisaism or legalism. Some make sanctification strictly a human activity, stumble into legalism, or perhaps more accurately, Pharisaism. For these, sanctification is an exercise in striving and usually failing to curry divine favor by adhering to a list of often extra-biblical rules. They tend to measure their own sanctification against others who are similarly seeking to gain favor with God and often lord it over those who are less successful than they. You've probably been with people, perhaps you've engaged in this yourself at some point along the way. You know, I'm not as bad as he is, but I have a way to go before I'm as good as he is. You know, and so we, we sort of measure ourselves against ourselves, and that's unwise. Okay? In this approach, the spirit is disposable to the sanctification process. The error of legalism has ensnared rather odd bedfellows, including Roman Catholicism, um, but also then some expressions of Christian fundamentalism and uh, other isms that are out there that I really don't want to spend the time talking about tonight. So, so there's a great number of, of isms out there that uh, that seem to be remote, remotely connected to one another. And so we have this idea of Pharisaism. Now, just because, I have a note here, just because a person recognizes biblical laws and seeks to obey them does not make that person a legalist or a Pharisee. I think sometimes I, 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 I hear that. Okay, so you're trying to be obedient to God? You must be a Pharisee. Well, no. <laughs> That's not what Pharisaism is, trying to obey God. It doesn't even mean that someone who actually you know, wants to go the extra mile to avoid sin is somehow a legalist. You know, if you've got a problem with pornography, there's certain aisles in the uh, convenience store that you might not walk down. That's not legalism. That's, you know, it's, it's biblical wisdom there. Okay? As we shall see below, between legalism and antinomianism lies the obedience of faith. Okay? So we're, we're after obedience. Obedience is not the enemy of sanctification. We do, in fact, if, if there's a single word uh, that that sort of you know takes all of the, what we're going to say about sanctification and puts it into one word, it's obedience. We want to obey God. There's also antinomianism. So these are those who react against the error of legalism, you know, mist-making and make sanctification so strictly a work of the Spirit that the believer's participation in his own sanctification is discouraged or even forbidden. Instances of this error are manifold. Early Lutherans so fixated on justification by faith alone that they lost sight of the fact that biblical sanctification demands effort. Like, you know, I'm saved. I can do whatever I want now. Wesleyans sought a state of perfect love in which striving cease and theosis could be achieved. So the goal here was to uh, the goal here was to somehow raise yourself to that that next state where you uh, you know Wesley talks about uh, not even having to expend effort in order to obey God. You're in this state of of perfection uh, that allows you then, without effort, uh, to do exactly 
what you're supposed to do. You let go and you let God. This is this is the Keswick approach here. That the, it's you know. So, so you stop striving. Let go. Let God. Let Him just sort of take the take the take the strings of you as a marionette, a puppet, and and He'll actually work through you, and you can just sort of relax. And I think there's a part of us that sort of likes the idea of you know getting to the point where we don't have to work so hard. Uh, to become like Christ and, 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 and fail so frequently. We, we long for the day when it won't take any effort. We don't have to think hard about uh, obeying in order uh, to, to become like Christ. And I think there's this, this, this yearning in all of us uh, for a kind of perfection. Uh, but it's not something that we can have in this life. Okay? Reformed theology has been somewhat more resilient uh, resistant should, should be res- resistant that is the wrong word there resistant to antinomian thought but even here there's waves of antinomianism that make appearances here uh, there's uh, Tullian Tavigian is, is one uh, there's, there's others um, who, uh, who've, who who've made this uh, who, who've expressed this idea that you know you don't don't strive don't work uh, don't certainly don't make lists of things that you need to do. Just you know, reckon on your justification, and and you'll you'll be better. And some errors that attend this are easy believism. Faith is simply assent to Jesus as Savior, not a submission to Christ as Lord. This is came out of the Keswick idea. All I have to do is believe, and if and once I've done that, I'm good. You know, there's a Pastor Northa here, that uh, uh, who says, you know, salvation is kind of like getting on an airplane. Once they close the doors, you're going to get to your destination, whether you want to or not. Um, but that's not the way salvation works. <laughs> okay, uh, it, 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 you have you, you need you need to you need to work hard to to get there. Okay. Um, second, reduction of perseverance to eternal security. Okay, so. Uh, again, some, some, somewhat similarly here, uh, the uh, perseverance of the saints, where the P of tulip, right, is the idea. Once that someone has been uh, has been saved by God, he will persevere in faith and obedience until the end. Uh, but some come along and say, "Let's get rid of the persevering aspect and just say we're eternally safe." So eternal security replaces perseverance. Now, both are true, of course, uh, but we dare not re- re- uh, replace perseverance with eternal security. And then also, there's some something of a general excuse for sin in the lives of professing believers. The invisible work of justification is so elevated in importance that the visible work of regeneration is just sort of shrugged off, and sin is excused. After all, I'm just I'm only a sinner saved by grace, so you can expect me to sin a lot. Okay, no. That's not the attitude that we should have uh, towards sanctification. Biblical idea of sanctification is threefold. Uh, the idea of, of sanctification is to be set apart, but sometimes that can be a little bit misleading just to look at the etymology of the word. But there's three senses in which sanctification occurs. The first is definitive sanctification, definitive sanctification. The believer is set apart dispositionally. 
when he receives a new nature and becomes the spirit man, which we just read about in 1 Corinthians 2. New essence by which, by which he is both immediately and thereafter defined. Hence the word definitive. It defines, I am defined by being a saint. Okay, It's not that I've just been classified a saint, but rather that is what defines me. I am a saint. I'm not simply declared to be righteous. I am actually advancing in holiness because I'm a new creature in Christ. Okay, And so we find this oftentimes in the past tense because it is the initial uh, expression of sanctification. Sometimes it's called positional sanctification. I'm just going to I'm going to talk about why I don't like that phrase here in just a minute. But uh, for now, definitive. So 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were washed, you were sanctified. Okay, and I think the one defines the other. You've been cleansed, you've been, you've been made new. You're a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Okay, so it's a, it's a new experience of life. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Now let's hear, let's see if we see, see if this makes sense to you here. In justification, the believer is freed from the guilt of sin and declared righteous by means of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account. In regeneration, a person becomes a new man. One whose slavery to sin has been decisively broken is incorrect to confuse the two. So it's it's not as though uh, when well, let me put up something the the the, uh, the uh, reformers used to speak in terms of union with Christ as having two parts, two benefits. Uh, we have on top here the forensic or legal which is justification by this we have been declared righteous our guilt that is our liability to punishment punishment has been borne by Jesus Christ and his righteousness has been added to our account so that God views us as having the righteousness of Christ, even though technically nothing's changed about me per se. Okay, I have not somehow become so personally righteous and so personally holy that I now merit heaven. Rather, Christ's righteousness has been accredited to my account so that I am, I am legally... Uh, uh, prepared for heaven. The other benefit of union with Christ is, is, is practical or experiential, and it's regeneration. When we are regenerated, we are made new creatures in Christ. Okay? It's technically incorrect to say that we are made righteous with justification. Rather, we're declared to be righteous in justification. In regeneration, on the other hand, we are men made new. 
or persons made new. I'm just using the language that Paul uses in Romans here. So we are people that are made new. We have a new nature. We're new creatures in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. Okay. And so what I was, I no longer am. I am something new. I am no longer this depraved creature who is incapable of pleasing God. Now I am a new creature in Christ, fully capable of pleasing Him, and expected to do so. Okay? So, we've got these two aspects. There's the legal aspect, there's the practical aspect of our salvation. Where is sanctification? Well, sanctification is down here. So, when we are regenerated, this instant whereby we are made new creatures in Christ, we are set apart in a practical sense. We are no longer in that situation where we are incapable of pleasing God. Now we have been made capable of pleasing God. The the power of depravity that once held us so that the man without the Spirit cannot please God, now is the man with the Spirit who can please God. We are perfectly capable now of pleasing God. And so what initial sanctification is, is something that's tied inextricably with regeneration. Okay? We're new creatures. We're no longer the depraved creatures that we were, the one, the man in Adam who is incapable of pleasing God. Now we are in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Okay? And the moment of regeneration is also the moment of initial sanctification, the moment of definitive sanctification, where we have been defined anew, okay? And so it's not just a matter of a change of status, but actually a breach of the power of sin made possible by our union with Christ. Let's look at a couple of these texts. Romans 6... Notice the number of times Paul makes reference to death. Okay, We died to sin. He's speaking about his experience as a new believer. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died is freed from sin. Okay? There's actually in, in verses 1 through 14, I think 16 references to death. Some form. Okay, this is this is the theme of this section. We died. We died. Okay, because I think we need to be reminded of the fact that we are not what we once were. And so, when God tells us to be like Christ, it's not something that I can. I'm depraved. There's nothing I can do. Yes, there is, because you died to sin. You died to that crippling power of sin that once bound you and made it impossible for you to please God. 
you are now rendered capable of pleasing God. And that's what definitive sanctification does. It is, it is that event whereby we are rendered capable of pleasing God and are no longer bound by the crippling power of sin. Okay? And so, it says in, in verse, verse 11... And keep going in this passage that we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin. That's how the King James reads it. I think believe the uh, the NIV has consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. Now there is a Keswick theology is a theology of, of sort of perfection, and the idea is that as you're you know going about life and you find yourself you know, not not acting as you ought to, being disobedient and such. What do you do to get yourself back on straight and narrow? Well, you reckon on your justification. You really think about your justification. Well, there's perhaps some value in doing that, you know, thinking about what Christ did for you on the cross. But there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no energy to be derived from that. The energy that you have is, as, as we're supposed to read that verse, is considering, consider the fact and, 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 and act on the fact that you, in fact, are alive in Christ and dead to sin. Okay? That's, that's, that's where the energy lies. In something that has happened to me. That, that, is, that has practically happened to me. Not something... Uh, that has happened in the on paper in the forensic world in the legal sphere, but actually something that has happened to me. Colossians one speaks about this as well. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your things heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your things mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Okay. That's how I advance in my holiness. Acting on the fact that what I was before I came to Christ is gone. And I am a new person in Christ. So definitive sanctification supplies the energy necessary for growth and personal holiness. Rather than looking for elusive works of additional grace, Wesley spoke of this, or or acts, additional acts of spirit baptism or consecration or the filling of the Holy Spirit to sort of, you know, sort of vault you back up into uh, a, per- a perfect state. The scriptures indicate that everything for life and godliness is already ours in our participation in the divine nature and the corresponding escape from the debilitating corruption of sin. In fact, let's go to Second Peter. Uh, to see that is a, a key passage that speaks about sanctification. Okay, Second Peter 1, 3 and 4. Simon Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received faith as precious as ours. So he's speaking to people who have just been justified. Grace and peace to you uh, be yours in abundance through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of him, and has called us by his own glory and goodness, through which he has given us these great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. Okay? 
So he's writing to people who have been justified, but he says, okay, you're justified, but you're also regenerated. You have been, you have become, you have, you are now in Christ. You've given, you've been given by God everything you need for life and, life and godliness, which means you need nothing else, right? You've got everything you need for life and godliness. You have resident within you the power to be obedient. It's not something, some sort of power that needs to come from without in order to make us obedient. Rather, we're strengthened in the inner man, to use Paul's language, to become more and more like Jesus Christ. The power is within you. It's the Holy Spirit resident within you, causing you then to obey. He's given us this participation in the divine nature and the escape from corruption. Okay? Uh, we're no longer we're no longer dogged by total depravity. You know, there's a question sometimes we, we ask in ordination councils: Are believers totally depraved? And and you know, usually the guy sort of scratches his head. And, you know, he's maybe he's a good Calvinist and wants to say, "Yeah, yes, absolutely, we're still totally depraved." And that answer is incorrect. Not that we are no longer. It, it, longer under any influence by sin at all, but we are not totally depraved. We are not incapable of pleasing God. Rather, God's given us everything necessary for life and godliness through a participation in the life of God and an escape from the corruption that is in the world. Okay. Of course, there is still sin, the dregs of sin, the remnants of sin that have established habits in our lives that continue to uh, to to call us to engage in sin. Nonetheless, we have escaped the crippling corruption of sin and are capable, because we are partakers of the divine nature, of pleasing God. And so we need to do that. But how do we do it? Well, people progress in their sanctification by advancing in his spiritual life negatively, by putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and positively by growing in Christian graces. So is, is there a shortcut? No, there's no shortcut. Only long cuts. Right? The only way to advance in holiness is to day by day systematically put to death the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh, and to cultivate Christian graces. It's a slow process. Sometimes it appears that you're taking one step forward and two steps back. And so sanctification is best measured in years, not in days, right? Because if, if we measure it by days, it's, it's, it's kind of like watching the stock market, right? It gyrates all over the place. But hopefully, in a good market, at the end of three years, you can look back and say, oh, we made progress. <coughs> Same thing is true with sanctification. Okay, it's, it's best measured in years rather than days, and so we advance slowly by day by day, putting to death the deeds of the body, deeds of the flesh, and by cultivating Christian graces. And we find this here, uh, Romans eight thirteen. If by the Holy Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Paul in First Corinthians, I discipline my body and make it my slave. Lest after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Colossians 3, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Second Peter, the text we're in here. For this reason, because 
I have participated in the divine nature and escaped the corruption that is in the world. For this very reason, add to your faith these virtues, knowledge, goodness, uh, faith, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. Cultivate these virtues. Okay. Now, the question might be asked, if you're already dead to sin, why do you still have to keep putting to death the deeds of the flesh? And that's, that's a sort of a paradox that we find routinely in the New Testament. Everyone who is pure purifies himself. You died to self. You, you died to sin, so don't be a slave to it again. You died to sin, therefore put sin to death. I, I don't get it. The fact is that Paul indicates while the old self, that totally depraved person in Adam, is dead and gone, the new self is not yet the perfect self. It is still beset by the influence of sin, called variously the flesh, indwelling sin, sin nature. But the believer himself is in his totality a new creature, made capable by by God of progressively and systematically suppressing and eradicating sinful inclinations. Ultimate conquest will not occur in this life, but true believers will inevitably advance in their struggle with sin. It will happen. It won't happen automatically. But the fact is that every true believer will expend the effort necessary to advance in holiness. It is inevitable. So that's progressive sanctification, which is probably what we tend to think of uh, when we think of sanctification. Finally then, final sanctification, where the believer is freed not only from the penalty and power of sin, but also from the very presence of sin at its glorification. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word that he might present her to himself, the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that she would be holy and blameless. So that's what we have to anticipate a day when, in fact, we are perfected. First Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Oh, wouldn't that be great? When's that going to happen? Well, your spirit and soul will be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's uh, when this will occur. So, how do you do it? How do you advance in holiness? Well, firstly, you have to have humility. You have to have humility. Biblical view of sanctification recognizes that the believer, as a spirit man, is never alone in his sanctification. He needs and has at his disposal the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Romans 8. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will, in fact, live. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. So we have to be humble with the recognition that I need help. I need help. 
Even though I am a new person in Christ, uh, part of the package is then that I need the Christ to which I am united. I need the Holy Spirit who indwells in me in order to advance in holiness. Next box I'm going to skip here because it's uh, it's a it's, it's what uh, Bill's going to talk about next time, and that is the filling of the Spirit. Some have made a great great deal of this idea of the filling of the Spirit as sort of I don't know sort of a, 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 a magical surge of. Of, uh, of energy that allows us to sort of be on top of the world in terms of sanctification uh, that I think has been probably w- way overblown and I'll let him tell you about this uh, so rather than looking for these these magical surges of sanctifying power we simply need to humble ourselves and to work hard yeah, so, so the idea where I where strivings cease. It's not a biblical idea. We're, we're constantly striving. Striving to the point of blood, Paul says. So in direct contrast to the Keswick idea of stillness or grace living that's common among libertines, biblical sanctification anticipates both rigorous activity and ruthless restraint on the believer's part. We have to work hard we have to discipline ourselves. This is not legalism. Rather, it reflects the synergy of the Spirit's work in sanctification with our participation in it. We're participants in our own sanctification, and we participate by restraining the the sin that you know, bubbles up within us, and then actually, you know, availing ourselves of the graces, uh, the the means of grace that are available to us. So, the obedience of faith by which we are sanctified is the work neither of the Spirit alone nor the believer alone, but rather to cooperative effort. A co- cooperative effort. So what does sanctification look like? Romans 8.13 If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. So I use this word ruthless restraint. And I know I am engaging in sin. And what does Jesus say? Now cut off your hand. Now, poke out your eye. You know, work hard. D- d- take extreme measures to make sure that sin does not continue. First Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And how do you do this? Well, everyone who competes in games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man shadow boxing. No, I beat my body, make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Okay, so that's what sanctification looks like. Second Corinthians 7, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Ephesians 2, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared for us so that we would walk in them. We work, we walk. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. You see the synergy, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching, straining forward, 
to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality and any number of other vices. Titus 2, the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, zealous for good deeds. Okay, so this is not legalism. This is straight scripture, right? So exactly what the scriptures say sanctification looks like. It looks like working hard, but also with this humble realization that you're not alone in the doing of it. You've got the resident Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ uh, resident within you. And the result then is change. Actual, legitimate change. It's not just some sort of an achievement of, of an equilibrium uh, where you know the, the good out, you know good levels off with the bad, but actually there's a gradual in, inexorable extirpation, a, a reduction of the sin in your life. Okay, it, it goes incredibly slow sometimes, as you're all aware, right? It just doesn't seem like you're making any progress. That's why I say measure sanctification in years, because after years you can look back and say, oh, I have it. That sin that I used to struggle so hard with, it's, you know, I haven't really even thought about that lately. And you realize that you make progress. Change occurs. Okay? And so, even though sanctification does not result in perfection in this life, this doesn't mean that we need to have a pessimistic outlook about our sanctification. Christian life is one of gradual inexorable growth in Christ's likeness and we are in a state of continual change uh, we, we looked at Romans 6 already, Romans 8 those whom he foreknow he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, we're changing First, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we with all all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into this image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that's really the promise of sanctification. We have been made new. We're new creatures in Christ, rendered capable of pleasing Him, and and brought out from under the crippling power of sin by which we were once bound to do only that which displeased God. We've been changed. We're new. And so because of that, we advance in our sanctification by cultivating Christian graces and putting to death the deeds of the body, and the result is growth. Change. We actually become conformed to the image of Christ. And there's oftentimes this thought, I wish there was some sort of a quick way, a shortcut isn't there, isn't there something that we can do to sort of get there a little bit faster? And the answer is no. Now, sometimes you do have, you know, seasons of life where you advance in holiness more than others. But the fact is, it's a slow process. It's a lifelong process. And uh, it's when we get into this idea, there's got to be some sort of a shortcut uh, that uh, we run into trouble. Next week, uh, 
uh, Bill Combs is going to uh, talk about uh, some of these shortcuts uh, that have been uh, proposed over the years and hopefully uh, put them, lay them to rest so that you're not uh, tempted by them. Okay, questions, thoughts as we uh, wrap up here tonight? Okay. Next week, I will not see you, but uh, Bill will be here and uh, he will keep, 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 uh, keep the knowledge coming. <laughs>